Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Sutton service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Thanks, Albert. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Oh, you're the lot that have not gone on summer holidays yet, clearly. Uh, well, great uh, to have you with us, and uh, we're continuing our series through Luke's Gospel today. And uh, the topic for today is how can we have faith for healing in particular, although uh, the application can be applied to other areas of life, breakthrough um, in other areas. But we particularly want to focus on healing. There are a whole load of healings in Luke's Gospel. We're going to look at one of them in a moment. And the expectation of the New Testament is that followers of Jesus should see miraculous breakthrough in the this area. But if your life is anything like mine, there's a little bit of a gap between what the Bible seems to say is possible when you follow Jesus and my present experience of seeing breakthrough with regards to healing. How do we bridge that gap? That's what I want to look at today. So we're going to read a few verses from Luke chapter 7, uh, the first uh, 10 to be precise. and The words are on the screen uh, for you to follow along. Uh, this is what Luke writes. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him he said I tell you I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Okay, what do we learn uh, in this passage? Uh, in some ways, the whole of Luke chapter 7 is about faith. Uh, the final part is what Catherine brilliantly preached on uh, a couple of weeks ago, where a woman comes and anoints Jesus' feet, and Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. So part of Luke 7 is about saving faith. It's about faith for miraculous breakthrough. It's about uh, faith for healing. And the faith in this story is so amazing that we're told Jesus marveled at it. Uh, Jesus actually only marvels at two things in the Gospels, faith and unbelief. Uh, sometimes there's such amazing stuff happening. Jesus is doing such wonderful stuff. He's amazed that people don't believe more than they do. And yet here is the opposite. Here is somebody stepping into the life in God that the Bible says is possible when you follow Jesus. And Jesus is like, wow. I've not seen this kind of faith even in Israel. How do we have this kind of faith? Uh, well, I want to suggest three things from Luke 7. Uh, it's particularly simple today, and I think it should be simple, something that all of us can do. Uh, step one to having faith that amazes Jesus is this, having a correct view of ourselves. Having a correct view of ourselves. What do I mean by this? Well, let's jump out of Luke's gospel for a moment. Probably the most explicit statement on faith in the whole of the Bible is at the start of Hebrews chapter 11. A long list in Hebrews 11 of people who are commended for their faith. And it starts with this, verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, 
and assurance about what we do not see. Uh, now, I'm going to unpack what I think this verse really means a bit later on. But here's the mistake I think we often make when we interpret this verse. We focus on the words confidence and assurance, and we think to ourselves, if I believe enough, if I've got enough confidence, if I pray hard enough, if I fast, if I do lots of really good stuff, then I will see breakthrough in this area. Uh, not only do I not think that's what Hebrews 11.1 means, I don't think faith that works that way at all. And yet so often we fall into the trap of thinking it, it's all on us. I've got to do more if I want to see breakthrough in this area. What's interesting about this uh, healing in Luke 7 is uh, the guy with the faith that amazes Jesus is like the most unlikely guy possible. Uh, we're told uh, he's a Roman, a few bullet points coming up on the screen. Uh, that would have mean he had a pagan upbringing, probably a pagan worshipper himself. His whole job is basically to enforce the slavery of the Jews. Uh, he'd have been a man of war. Uh, probably he'd have achieved the title centurion through distinguishing himself on the battlefield. So he's probably killed a lot of people. Uh, more than that, what's interesting in uh, Luke 7, in the account of this miracle, he and Jesus don't even meet. Uh, it starts with some elders of the Jews going to Jesus, and then he sends some friends. But they never actually see each other face to face. Uh, there is no evidence that this centurion prays. There is nothing in the passage to suggest that at all. It's not even clear that the centurion believes that Jesus is God. Uh, now, just to qualify this, he clearly thinks Jesus is connected to God. Because the analogy he gives is, look, I'm a centurion, and I know I've got power. But the reason he's got power is because he's connected to a general who's connected to Caesar. Caesar's the one with the power. And he seems to view Jesus in a similar way. Like he's doing amazing stuff. He's clearly connected to God, but there's no evidence that he thinks that Jesus is divine. And yet, this is the guy with amazing faith. In other words, like if this guy can have amazing faith, this should encourage all of us that we can have amazing faith too. So how do we get it? Well, I think that the, the key is looking at the comparison between this guy and the people that come to Jesus. The kind of elders of the village come to Jesus and they say, this guy deserves to have you do this. He deserves the healing because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. A number of interesting things going on here. Um, this Roman centurion is clearly a leader. Uh, probably he was very uh, wealthy, at least to some degree. Uh, he's built the synagogue. Uh, that would have been considered holy ground. It would have been very unusual for a Roman uh, to do that. He loves Israel. Again, very unusual. We don't know what's happened in his heart uh, to make uh, that happen. And he cares for his servant. Uh, at this point in history, if you've got a servant who's sick, uh, you are uh, totally free to get rid of them without giving them any compensation. And yet this centurion wants his servant to get well. So he's clearly a man of compassion to some degree as well. And because of all these things, the elders say, look, look at this amazing guy. He deserves to have you heal his servant. It's, again, that, that kind of trap we fall into with Hebrews 11.1. If I have enough confidence and assurance, if I do enough stuff, then I'll see breakthrough. But notice the comparison with the centurion. Verse 6, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. I'm not worthy enough to come to you. The first key to having faith that Jesus marvels at, if we want to see breakthrough in the area of healing, is just a realization of our own lack of power. There's no special way to pray. There's no formula. 
In other words, when it comes to seeing breakthrough and healing, you and I, we bring absolutely nothing to the table. Or perhaps I can put it differently, that the only thing we bring to the table is our desperate need of God. That's it. The problem is, if you're like me at least, most of the time I don't realize how desperately I need God. I'm sure some of you have come across uh, C.S. Lewis's masterpiece, uh, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, If you've not, uh, the whole idea behind the book is like a chief demon uh, writing to one of his protégés about ways to trip Christians up. It's really insightful, very clever, well worth a read. And uh, one of the things that C.S. Lewis writes is that the chief demon says, if you find a Christian who wants to break through in the area of faith, if you want to find a Christian who wants to break through in this area, like don't engage them intellectually. Like, don't help them realize their own powerlessness. He says this, make them busy. Fill their life with stuff, and it'll stop them embarking on the life of faith. And um, when I read that, I'm like, oh, that, that's so me. You see, here's the tragedy about the Western church. Here's the tragedy about our church. Here's the tragedy about my life. If we go through the next 12 months and we don't see a single salvation, no one come to faith, if we don't see anyone get healed, if we don't see any breakthrough in any area at all, life will just carry on, won't it? Sun will rise and set. We'll get on with our busy, busy lives and we'll miss out on some of the life that I think Jesus says is possible when you follow him. Because I live my life without this daily realization, oh goodness, how much I need God. Uh, I know uh, most of you know of Tim Keller, brilliant author and speaker, uh, very sadly passed away uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, But I once heard him say this, bad times don't create our need of God, they just reveal it. In other words, like most of my life, like I don't realize how much I need God, then a bad thing happens and I'm like, oh goodness, I realize my weakness, goodness I need him. That need is there all the time. I just don't realize it most of the time. If I want faith that amazes Jesus, step one is, I I don't deserve to have you do this. I'm not worthy. I bring nothing to the table other than my own weakness. Um, I want to show a short video to illustrate this. I'm going to show a couple of videos in this talk because I want to give us some real-life examples to help hopefully uh, elevate our sense of confidence that we might see breakthrough uh, in this area. Uh, And this is a two to three minute video of a couple of friends of mine. Uh, Well, I I say friends, I've not actually been in touch with them for about 15 years. So they were once friends and they're lovely people. Uh, They're actually uh, part of um, the church I was in in Birmingham before we moved to London to start Christchurch. Uh, They're called Zach and Sarah. Uh, I knew them when they were single, watched them start dating. uh, They got married shortly after I moved to London. And this is just a really short testimony of God breaking into their life in this area in an amazing way. Let's play the first video now. Hi, my name is Zach and this is Sarah Joy, uh, my wife. And we want to tell you a quick story about how God did a really big healing in our life and the life of our family. Um, So cast your mind back, 2010, Sarah Joy was um, pregnant with what turned out to be twins, we found out at the 12 week scan. Complete surprise, never had it in the family before. And everything was going fine until we went in for the routine 20 week scan. And there they said, oops, this isn't good. There's two very big problems you've got here. Number one is your twins are not growing anywhere near as fast as they should. So they were absolutely tiny. And problem number two was for the second twin in that part of his brain was missing. It just hadn't formed at all. And that's called the inferior cerebellum vernis. 
and that's what controls for kind of movement and coordination. Um, so then they uh, gave us an option. They said either you can terminate or um, you can carry on with this this pregnancy. And we wanted to carry on with the pregnancy. Um, so uh, the issue was that they weren't very growing very well. So they were dead tiny. So um, that was one of the issues that they might not even survive the pregnancy. Um, and then the other issue was this big black hole in the uh, back of Finley's brain. Um, during my pregnancy, I was scanned up to twice a day I think towards the end um, just to check on whether they had stopped growing or whether the blood flow had changed um, and they also um, wanted just to yeah keep a close eye on them so we knew we were going to get um, babies that were premature. If, if we were lucky so to speak because the chances were almost that they wouldn't survive or certainly one wouldn't survive because they were so small so so we did all we could do which was pray and ask those around us to pray pray that they would keep growing and pray that um, uh, Finley's brain would basically regenerate itself which we were told point blank you know medically impossible and we actually got told could you stop asking to see has it grown back yet because it's not going to at all. Um, they actually thought we weren't dealing with the, the consequences of having a disabled child but we totally were but we just knew um, that we needed to pray as well. Um, so on the Friday um, in May they uh, decided that actually they needed to be um, got out because uh, the blood flow had changed and so they got them out um, and then three days later uh, they had a routine head scan uh, which all premature babies get just to check whether there's any bleeding on the brain. Now this is a new set of doctors, a new set of radiographers um, and I ran up to the radiographer and just said just to check is the inferior cerebellum firmus still missing she said oh hang on a minute I haven't checked the notes I'm just going to um, redo the scan and I'll let you know so remarkably God brought them out alive and three days later we don't know exactly when it was but it was proven three days after they were born Finney's brain had completely grown back and now he is a living miracle and he's had three scans since um, and it's totally there and they can't explain um, how it has regenerated itself. Praise God. I, I still shake my head in, in wonder. I, I, I cry at everything, sorry. Um, emotion down, control, there we go. Um, I, I still shake my head in wonder at that story. And, and the reason I show it is, is when you are confronted with like, like a missing brain, and doctor saying, this is impossible. Like, you know in that moment, there's, there's no amount of praying I, I can do that's gonna be good enough. There's no special thing, there's, there's, there's no amount of good works. I'm just totally reliant on the favor and grace and power of God. That's step one, to faith that amazes Jesus and seeing breakthrough in this area. Knowing my lack, knowing how much I need God. Now, if that's step one, what's step two? Well, if step one is a correct view of ourselves, step two is a correct view of God. Uh, what do I mean by this? Well, um, if you are like me, um, most people I know often nail step one on this journey. Uh, in that, um, I know I'm not worthy most of the time. I know I'm not good enough. I don't pray enough. Uh, I don't read the Bible enough. Uh, I don't pray for you enough. Sorry to let, let you down. Um, 
Uh, I don't do enough good works. I sin way more than I feel that I should. I'm just painfully reminded of my own brokenness a lot of the time. But then here's what I do is, is Jonathan, you look really shocked at my sin. <laughs> um, thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks. Um, uh, here's what I do is I think because I don't pray enough, because I'm not good enough, I think, well, therefore, I can't really expect God to bring breakthrough in this area. And I basically fall into the same trap, like the inverse trap that the Pharisees do in this story. They come to Jesus and say, like, look at all this amazing stuff this guy has done. Like, he's an amazing guy. Therefore, he deserves to have you heal his servant. It's exactly the same way as saying, well, these people over here, they haven't done a, enough good stuff, so they don't deserve you to come and heal his servant. How often do I fall into that trap? And yet this guy, this centurion, He's like, I know I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I don't deserve even to see you face to face, but nonetheless, I'm going to ask. Why? Because I've seen what you're like, and I know you're good, and I know you're faithful, and I know you're kind, and I know you have the power that I need. So I know I'm not worthy, but I know that you are good, and therefore I'm going to come to you and ask. That's the key, knowing what Jesus is like. Um, I think in our culture, often we, we subjectivize faith a lot. And, and faith all becomes about what we do and how much we believe and believing with all of our heart. That is not how faith works. Now, let me give you a couple of silly illustrations to kind of illustrate this. Uh, imagine, if you will, two rock climbers stranded on a rock face. No idea which way to go. No idea how to find salvation. Rock climber number one is like, I am totally confident this is the way to safety and salvation. Rock climber number two is like, I really don't know. I'm scared. We might die. But I think it might be this way to safety and salvation. Rock climber number one, in all his confidence, he goes his way, plummets to his doom. Rock climber number two, doubtful, fearful, anxious, he goes his way, finds safety and salvation. Now, in that illustration, the amount of confidence you have has nothing to do with your salvation. The key is believing in the right rock. That, that's the key, believing in something beyond yourself. Now, let me give you a, a, a different illustration, basically saying the same thing in a different way. If you think of... Uh, maybe the most iconic miracle in the whole of the Old Testament. Uh, Moses leading the Israelites through the Red Sea. Just imagine that moment uh, for a second. The Israelites walking through wall of water on your right, wall of water on your left. Now, I wasn't there, but I'm going to guess that some of the Israelites were like, wow, our God's awesome. Look at what he's doing. This is incredible. I'm also going to guess that some of the Israelites are like, ah, I'm really scared. This could fall back down and crush us and kill us any moment. Some of them were confident, some of them were scared, all of them were saved. In other words, it, it, it's not the strength of our faith that saves us, it's the object of our faith that saves us. That's the key to breakthrough faith. How much faith did the centurion need to see healing? All he needed was enough faith to call Jesus. That's the key. I'm not good enough, but oh, he is, so I'm going to come and ask. Uh, let me give you another story here. A famous London preacher uh, called Dr. Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones. Um, thousands had come and hear him in London uh, every week. Uh, this is many decades ago now. Uh, and he tells a story. <clears throat> he was actually preaching to his congregation, but he said he'd recently been to do a guest preach in Wales. And um, at the end of the talk, the, the leads of the church came up to him, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, said, look, would you come and meet with our former minister? Uh, he basically had some kind of breakdown, 
Uh, he's got terrible headaches, stomach cramps, like he can't even really go out the house. He's just a shell of a man and we don't know what to do. So Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, sure, I'll come and meet with him. Uh, went round his house, sat down in his living room and he started by saying, well, tell me your story. Like, how did this all start? And this guy said, well, it's really simple, really. It was during the Second World War. Uh, I signed up to the Navy. Uh, we were on a boat sailing across the Mediterranean. Our ship got hit by a mine, and we all kind of plummeted to the bottom of the Mediterranean. And that's kind of where it started. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones listens and he says, um, OK, um, just tell me your story one more time. This guy says, sure, uh, it's really simple, really. Second World War, signed up to the Navy on a boat, sailing across the Mediterranean, hit by a mine, uh, the boat and all on it tumbled to the bottom of the sea, and, and that's basically where it started. Okay, said uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, tell me your story one more time. Okay, says the guy, well, I was uh, in the Navy, Second World War, on a boat, crossing the Mediterranean, uh, ship got hit by a mine, tumbled to the bottom of the sea, um, and it all basically just started there. Uh, okay, says um, Lloyd-Jones, tell me your story one more time. And while he was preaching, he leant over the lectern and said, this was all part of my medication. And this kind of back and forth uh, went on a dozen, two dozen times. Uh, and eventually, with this guy repeating the same story over and over again, he said, right, I've got another question for you now. And the question is this, are you still at the bottom of the Mediterranean? He said, physically, you may not be, but mentally you are. He said, your trouble is in your own mind. You are still at the bottom of the sea. When you told your story, why didn't you say you came up to the surface? That someone on another ship saw you, got hold of you, that you were treated and healed and eventually found your way back here. Why isn't that part of your story? Lloyd-Jones said, as a result of that conversation, that man was totally set free, totally restored, and within a year was back in leadership again. And in his sermon, he said this, he says, so often I meet Christians that metaphorically speaking are living at the bottom of the Mediterranean. You ever met Christians like that? Don't look around the room at this point, by the way, that would be discouraging. But basically, oh, the world is dark, like cost of living crisis, like war, climate crisis, the church is in decline in the West, we're all doomed. Like, you ever met a Christian like that? I've been in churches like that. And you just walk out feeling like, oh, like there's just no hope. And we forget that part of our story is the tomb was empty, death has been defeated, sin has been dealt with, and Jesus is very, very alive. Like th that's our story. You know, so often I live my life at the bottom of the sea, and I forget he's alive. He could break in any moment. Like this is exciting and it should change my emotional reaction as a result. Now, if, I really, if I really knew how broken I am, but just how good he is, and the fact he's with me right now, maybe I'd come to him more in prayer than I actually do in real life. Step one for breakthrough faith in the area of healing and any area, to be honest, is knowing I'm not worthy. I don't deserve to have you do this. But step two, knowing that you're so good and you're so kind and you're so powerful and you love me so much. And therefore, step three, told you it'd be simple, is living in the light of these two principles. Therefore, I know I'm broken, but I know you're good, so I'm going to come to you and ask. That, that's the key. Uh, let's go back to Hebrews chapter 11 uh, and verse 1. Faith is confidence in what we hope for 
and assurance about what we do not see. What does this verse really mean? You see, what's interesting about Hebrews chapter 11, long list of people who are commended for their faith, they're all commended by and large for things that they do. Like, they did this, therefore they're to be commended for their faith. Why therefore do we think Hebrews 11.1 is about what we think? Uh, Many of you will have heard of Tim Mackey, who runs the Bible Project, which is just a really accessible way to understand the Bible more. Loads of great articles and videos uh, on there. He says a better way to understand this verse, he throws in a couple of Greek words. I'm not going to do that. It's very hard um, to use Greek words and not sound pretentious, so I'll just avoid the Greek words. But basically, he says this. Faith, basically, this verse basically means faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things we do not see. In other words, there's something substantial that's happened, evidence we can touch, something we can look at, and we're to live in the light of that. Uh, he gives this example, which I found um, quite helpful. Uh, often towards the end of winter, you get like a, like a really sunny and unusually warm day. Like it's still winter, but the sun comes out. And what happens when the sun comes out is um, the crocus begins to flower. Uh, it's, it's a sign that kind of winter is kind of ending, spring is on the way. In fact, outside our house, there's just like this big patch where there's like hundreds of crocuses just like this. It's absolutely beautiful. Then, then, of course, what happens is because it's not the end of winter, the crocus is out, but then you get another cold day or two. And uh, next picture is actually of a crocus in the middle of snow. So the crocus has flowered. It's a sign that spring is on the way, but uh, actually it's still winter right now. Now, what happens in every church community at this point, like the moment the first warm day of spring comes, is there are people in every church community who see, oh, sunshine, and they start wearing T-shirt and shorts. And when it snows again, uh, they're still in T-shirt and shorts. Um, in our church community, if you know Ian and Heather Rushton and their children, like it can be minus 10 outside, and Ian and the kids are still in T-shirt and shorts. We've called social services. They're dealing with it. It's fine. <laughs> But that's a metaphor of how we are to live as followers of Jesus. Because here's the deal in our story, the crocus has flowered. Jesus is risen. The tomb was empty. And with the resurrection of Jesus, we're told, Corinthians tells us, he's like the first fruits of a resurrection harvest, of a new age that is being ushered in, where one day there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more sickness and death. The old order of things will have passed away. He will make all things new. And therefore, if I look at the crocus, if I really believe he's risen from the dead, even though it might feel cold outside, war in Ukraine, cost of living crisis, climate crisis, even though I look at all of that, if I think the crocus has flowered, then metaphorically speaking, as a follower of Jesus, I am to put on t-shirt and shorts and though it might feel a bit uncomfortable, I'm to live in the light of the season that is coming. That's what it looks like to live as a person of faith. I know I'm broken, but I know he's good. And I believe the tomb is empty. So I'm now going to put on my t-shirt and shorts and live in the light of that. That's how we see breakthrough in this area. Now, I want to show you just a, one more short video uh, to illustrate this. Uh, this is a lady called Chloe Smart. Uh, she works for Alpha UK. Uh, Alpha is the organization that runs the brilliant Alpha course that I think like 30 million people have done now. Just a brilliant introduction to the Christian faith. We're going to run it for our youth uh, in the autumn term and for adults hopefully in the new year. Uh, this video is just a minute long. Let's play it now. 
I remember when I was 17, I was in the car with my driving instructor for the first ever time. And she said, Chloe, you're going to have to be careful on this uh, journey because um, I got sciatica. So you can't go over any speed bumps. You can't stall a car. You can't brake suddenly. I thought, oh my goodness, it's my first ever lesson. I've never driven a car before. And she's telling me I can't stall the car. And I remember saying, you know, nervous, but I plucked up the courage and said, well, in my church, we often pray for people for healing. Can I pray for you? She said, well, I'm not religious or anything, but okay, if you want to. So I remember putting my hand on her back and saying, in the name of Jesus, pain go, amen. And all of a sudden she said, oh my goodness, my back is filling up with heat. And in that moment, all the pain left. And I even stalled the car three times and she was fine. <laughs> but as we then started driving on my driving lesson, she said, so what kind of Christian are you and what church do you go to? And, and I started talking about faith and life and invited her to Alpha and she came to our church Christmas service and it opened my eyes to what living a normal supernatural life can be like. That's a great example of what it looks like to metaphorically speaking wear t-shirt and shorts. It's that moment when you're in the car and your driving instructor says, I've, I've got pain and thinking, oh no. Do I have to pray right now? It's cold outside. I'm gonna put on my t-shirt and shorts and I'm gonna give this a go. I'm gonna pray. That's how we see breakthrough. Now, of course, as we live this out, does everyone get healed this side of Jesus making all things new? No. Do I understand why some people get healed and some don't? No. There is mystery here. But if I really am convinced the crocus has flowered, if I look at the evidence and think, oh, I think the tomb really was empty, the Holy Spirit really has been given to the church, then because of the evidence, my job is not to worry about when God breaks in and when he seemingly doesn't. It's just to don t-shirt and shorts and live in the light of the season that is coming. I was reading an article this week uh, where a guy just really just helpfully unpacked four different types of healing. Number one, natural healing. Like I scrape my arm and uh, it naturally heals because of the way God has made my body. Uh, number two, supernatural healing. A bit like that story on somebody's first driving lesson. Number three, healing through the expertise of others. I break my leg, I go to hospital, there are doctors and nurses who treat me and through their skill, I end up getting well. And number four, resurrection life, where Jesus comes back and makes everything new. John Wimber, who founded the Vineyard Network of Churches, uh, he said this, go and pray for a hundred people and then come back and tell me God doesn't heal today. Uh, I find that really challenging. Now, I'm not going to do this, but if I went around this room right now and said, how many people have you prayed for for healing in the last year? How many kind of driving lesson moments have you had? I'm going to guess that for most of us, be like one, two, zero, five. Like, like really, like Danny Webster, like he's really holy. He'll have prayed for a hundred easily, but for most of us, it will be less than that. But I feel like I want to promise you that if this time next year I asked that question, how many have you prayed for? If the answer is suddenly 10, 20, 50, like one a week, I promise you, I, I won't have to show videos of people outside of our church. We'll start getting the stories ourselves. Uh, one final story before I close. Um, when I was in my teenage years, 
every summer holiday, uh, I would follow a kind of national evangelist around who would do like holiday clubs for kids. And we go to different parts of the country and like kids would come along for free and hear about how great Jesus is. And the beautiful thing about kids is just watching them just believe what they hear with this like childlike faith and thinking, I want to give this a go. Uh, and he always used to tell this story. I don't know why I always remember this one, but of an eight-year-old girl who fell in love with Jesus. And she was just up for praying for anyone and anything. And there was one holiday club where this eight-year-old girl went up to another girl and said, what can I pray for you? And this girl said, well, um, she was a bit embarrassed. She was really shy. didn't talk much. Um, I've always had really crooked teeth. And um, I'm going to cry again. Sorry. But if Jesus could do anything... I just pray that he'd straighten my teeth. And this eight-year-old girl just put her hand on her shoulder and prayed the simplest prayer. And as she prays, this other girl suddenly goes, my mouth, my mouth. When she pulls her hand away, she's got the most beautiful set of perfectly straight teeth. Now, the reason I tell that story is I think if we have any responsibility at all, if there's anything for us to do as a community, is to create a culture like that, whereby I know I'm a child. I don't have all the answers. Like, I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. I don't deserve this. But Jesus is amazing. Like, he's just so good. And he's risen from the dead. He's alive. And therefore, I don't deserve it. But if he's that good, goodness, I'm going to come and ask. And I feel like I want to promise us, as we come and ask, let's see what God might do, shall we? Maybe I can ask the band to come up. And can I ask us all to stand? And, and before we sing a, just a, a final song of worship where we just focus on Jesus, uh, I'm just going to pray for us. I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. And I'm going to pray for a couple of things in particular. Uh, firstly, it stands to reason that there um, might be people in this room right now and, and you're sick. Uh, and therefore, like, if you want to come for prayer at the end, um, you're welcome to. You can also turn to people around you. Like my prayers aren't any more special than anybody else's. But I would like to pray for you from the front now, that that sickness would go in Jesus' name. And the second thing I'm going to pray is um, I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and, and speak to us about people in our lives who might be sick. I'm sure there are at least a dozen people in this room and you know someone and they're not well right now and they really need Jesus to break in. Or maybe he wants to send you. And so I'm just going to pray, and I just want you to be open to Jesus bringing people to mind or giving you that uncomfortable nudge, time to wear T-shirt and shorts. Time to stop living in the season that's passed, live in the light of the season that is coming. Let's just invite God to come and speak right now. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come right now. We know that you're here already. But reveal more of yourself, reveal more of Jesus to us, I pray. Lord, we are not worthy. We don't deserve you. We bring nothing to the table other than our desperate need of you. Here we are. But we remind ourselves that you are so good. 
You're so loving. You're so kind. We don't understand why you love us so much, but we receive your love right now. Through the cross, we stand forgiven and clean. Righteous in your sight. So we come to you now. And we want to pray for anyone in our church community who is sick. Would you bring healing out of your grace and mercy in the name of Jesus? Would sickness go in Jesus' name? Any of our children are sick. Heal them in Jesus' name. And in the stillness of this moment, we ask, Spirit of God, would you come and speak to us about those in our world who need a word from Jesus, who need your healing power, where we need to wear t-shirt and shorts and live in the light of a new season. Come speak now, we pray. Keep speaking, Lord, we pray. And as we worship you now, we ask for more of your presence. But we want to finish by fixing our eyes on you. It's all about you. You're so good. You're alive. You're with us now. And so we make you the center again. Meet with us in this moment of worship, I pray in Jesus' name. Let's worship Jesus together.